Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would do your work in this service. We thank you for Brother Brinkley and his family being with us today. We ask that you would take each song that is sung, each special, everything that is done, and use it to your honor and your glory. We pray that you would be praised in this service. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Turn to John chapter 12, where we'll start this morning. And uh, Brother Zach, if I could ask you a favor there, the second switch there, if you could just turn off that monitor speaker. It's the second switch there on the side. We're rewiring things here and getting it working well. How many people know what today is? Palm Sunday. And... uh, in the past, we've tried to give out palm leaves and things. And this this year, we tried to do something just uh, a little different. We I went to Home Depot and was picking up some things, and they had palms on sale uh, for 10 bucks. And so I said, I can't buy the palm fronds for that cheap. Let's buy some real ones and put in here and uh, keep them in here. And let us remember Palm Sunday every Sunday. Amen. Uh, it's not just once a year, and uh, if if you go to some churches, you would think that was, there's only two really important things that ever happened. Uh, one was Jesus was born, and the other, Jesus resurrected from the dead. It's just uh, Christmas and Easter. Uh, I, I want to tell you that Jesus is not near as interested in Christmas and Easter as he is in what you're doing on the other 50 Sundays a year. Amen. Uh, because if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing on those 50 Sundays a year, you'll be doing what you're supposed to be doing on the two special ones. Amen. Uh, I mean, it just works that way. But I, I want us to look at the events. And most of us, if, if you're familiar with the events of Palm Sunday, would you just slip up a hand so I, I know that you're familiar with those events Because if half of you don't raise your hands, then we're going to have to take time to tell the story. Uh, If most of you know the story, we're not going to deal with the uh, story itself so much as we will uh, with the meaning of those events and what was going on. And by the way, that's why uh, normally in our Sunday school time when we don't have a missionary here or someone else that we're just going through the Bible in our Sunday school time, so you can learn the story, so you can know uh, what happened and when we talk about different things, and not only the big important ones, but also all the other events that are in the Bible. The greatest storybook that was ever written is this book right here. You can't, you can't make up better stories than God has already written, amen? And they're just wonderful things. But I want us to look at the reality of this event. This is talking in John chapter 12 is John's record of what happened on Palm Sunday, sometimes called the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, look at verse 16 with me. It says, these things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, Then remembered they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. The first part of the first point I want to make this morning is 
what happened on Palm Sunday was the fulfillment of prophecy. Not just one prophecy, but several. And, and uh, actually, we could look at many, many others that were alluded to, but we're going to look at two main prophecies. I want you to go to the book of Zechariah. Now, how many know the difference between Zechariah and Zephaniah? Uh, those were two different names in the Old Testament. These are important prophecies. Zechariah was alive uh, when they were rebuilding the temple in the city of Jerusalem. He was the one that went to Zerubbabel, another one of those fun names in the Bible, and he said, listen, you started building this temple, you're going to finish building the temple. And Zerubbabel did, and yet much of what is in Zechariah is all prophecy. Some of it has yet to be fulfilled. Some of it has been fulfilled, and we look here in Zechariah chapter 9, and I want us to just read two verses, verses 9 and 10. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the colt, the foal of an ass. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. Now, you read those two verses. And the first verse, if you know the story of Palm Sunday... It's pretty easy to see this verse in Palm Sunday now, isn't it? Jesus rode on a donkey. He rode on the donkey and the foal. Uh, read Matthew at the same time. They brought both of them there. And they made them like a moving throne down the hillside into the city of Jerusalem. They cast their garments upon them. Now, donkeys are known for one thing. Oh, somebody said it. Stubbornness. Uh, donkeys do not often do what they are told to do. And especially an unbroken donkey, one that hasn't been trained, one that hasn't been prepared to carry riders. Uh, how many of you have ever seen this? the depiction of the Old West? The guy gets up on the horse or the rodeo, and I mean that horse is trying to throw him off and... And, of course, they do things to the horse or the bull to make it very upset before the guy gets on the back. And uh, you're supposed to be tough by riding it. But don't ever climb on a horse that's not prepared and not trained to carry a rider. Because you'll get a ride, but it's not going to be on the horse. Trust me. And horses are very kind and patient compared to donkeys. What made this, these animals behave the way they did? Well, it was real easy. God. Brother Brinkley was saying something about it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to believe in the Bible. And we've talked about that often here. And... Uh, one of my favorite little stories is a guy was, we were going back and forth on evolution. He says, you just, he said, you're so simplistic. He says, you just plug God into the equation and he answers all the questions. 
said, you got it. That's exactly correct. Amen. I want to know what you plug into your equation that gives any answers. And you've just given their answer because they have none. It's all chance. It's all just kind of happened so. Listen, God is not happened so. God is not by chance. He planned this day. Now, if we have any Calvinists here today, you're going to love this next part of the sermon. But don't get too comfortable because we'll make you uncomfortable before it's over. Amen. But God planned the events of this day before the foundation of the universe. He knew that his son was going to ride into the city of Jerusalem and present himself as the king. And by the way, I believe that Jesus was accepted as the king. Uh, he, uh, the people worshipped him, and we'll get into that in just a few minutes. But it says here, look at these words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold thy king. Do you think it's any mistake that just a few days later, thank you, any mistake that just a few days later, they wrote on a sign nailed to his cross, the king of the Jews. Was that a coincidence, my friend? And when the scribes and the Pharisees came to Pilate and said, you can't write that. He's not our king. What did Pilate say? What I've written, I've written. Even wicked old Pilate fulfilled prophecy. But let's go back to the first verse we read. Do you think Pilate understood that he was obeying God and putting that sign on Jesus' cross? If he had understood that, he wouldn't have done it because he didn't care about God. He didn't want to obey God. He didn't want to follow God. He just wanted to get out of this mess as easy as he could. And he really thought, I'm just going to rub a little salt in the Pharisees. I'm just going to get them. They, they put me in this horrible situation. I'm going to just get back at them a little bit. That's all Pilate was thinking. God said, no, you're going you're gonna to fulfill my word, Mr. Pilate, whether you want to or not, because he is the king. And by the way, the next phrase in there, what's it say? He is just and having what? Salvation. Who else could this be talking about? He is just and having salvation. Jesus died on the cross in your place, in my place. I like the way one preacher put it. I wish I could remember who said it. He said, Jesus, as the infinite of God, accomplished in one day what would take every sinner an eternity in hell to accomplish. That's how great he is. He rode that donkey in because he is the king. 
not only of Jerusalem, but of the universe. He is the high king of heaven, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it doesn't matter whether you admit it or not. That doesn't change who he is. And he is such a gracious king that he'll even be long-suffering in your, toward your disobedience. Because he's giving you time to repent of your sins and trust him as the king. This is the king that brings salvation. Amen. This is the king that rode that donkey into the city of Jerusalem. But what's the next phrase? Lowly. When is the last time you heard of a lowly king? I mean, do you remember Saddam Hussein? What was he in charge of? Does anybody remember? Does anybody remember the last days of the war that he was calling out all of these orders to divisions of armies that didn't exist and telling his soldiers to get up the weapons of mass destruction which he had been lying about himself for all those years? I mean, this man was as deluded a lunatic as could possibly be. And when our soldiers pulled him out of that little hole that was dug in the side of that hill... He said, I am Saddam Hussein, president of Iraq. And they said, you're under arrest. You're nobody. Just don't move or you'll be a dead nobody. Have you ever met a humble king? By the way, have you ever met a humble politician? I know I pick on them awful lot. But you know what? The mess that we have today of politicians, they deserve to be picked on just a little bit now, don't they? It, it's sad. The pride and the arrogance is just beyond the scope of human reasoning. But how did the king of kings come in? Lowly. You see, he had a purpose. And we'll get to that in our last point. But his purpose was not just victory, but victory over death. His purpose was not to just be the king of Jerusalem, but he will be king of the entire world. Do you think we're going to have problems when Jesus is king? Are we going to have rebellion when Jesus is king? You read your Bible, the book of Isaiah, and see the next verse here jumps at least 2,017 years in the future. You say, where, where do you get that number? Well, roughly 2,000 years since Jesus was here, actually about 1,970-some years. Then you have to add seven years from the tribulation. If Jesus should come today, the millennial kingdom still not starting for about seven years. So at least that many years ahead is verse 10, but it's right next to verse 9. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. There's not going to be any more war. His kingdom is going to be from sea to sea. It's going to be all the way around the world. It's going to be his dominion is going to be worldwide. That's when Jesus comes again at the end of the tribulation period. 
But these two verses are put right together. And if you're not careful, you'll miss the whole thing. And someone, many people have criticized the Bible and said, how could those two verses be right together talking about separate events that are thousands of years apart? Uh, That's not true. Oh, yes, it is. How many of you have ever been in the mountains? I mean, the real mountains. Driving out west, you can see some of those mountains hundred miles away. You have no idea how far Mount Rainier is away from the, uh, what is that, Route 5 or whatever that main highway runs up and down the west coast until you take the exit and go down those crazy little mountain roads and come around the curve and there's 4,000 foot of nothing in front of you. And that mountain is still... Way off in the distance. Well, all the prophet could see was what God was revealing to him. He showed him the mountaintops. He just didn't show him how far the valley was in between. You see, God is not in the habit of explaining everything to you and I. Because he's eliciting, he's desiring some one little thing from us. It's called faith. Amen. He just wants us to believe God because He is God. That's how you get saved. By the way, that's how you live for the Lord as well. And this prophecy was foretold. And the disciples, as they took that donkey and put their clothes on and started shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were calling Him by the rightful title of the Messiah, the King of the Jews. But they didn't understand the things they did until after that he was risen from the dead. Let me tell you, there's no group of men in history that knew the Bible any better than the scribes and the Pharisees that lived in Jesus' day. To become a Pharisee, you had to have Genesis through Deuteronomy memorized. Now, how many of you have complained about reading Deuteronomy in your Bible reading schedule. I mean, come on, Pastor, do we have to read the book of Numbers, the golden spoon that weighed ten shekels of silver and the gold silver bowl and the, and the, and the, and the, oh, come on, what is all of that about? They had to memorize it, my friend. And by the way, there weren't the chapter references and uh, and the uh, verse divisions in there. They had to memorize it as one huge text block. The entire book of Numbers. That was just to pass the test to be part of the crew. They knew these verses. They had read them many times. And yet, as they saw Jesus riding that donkey into the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem, their mind was completely closed. We'll get to the reason why in just a moment. But there's one more prophecy I want us to go to. I want us to go to the book of Daniel. You see, Zechariah lived 
about the same time Daniel did, but Zechariah lived in Jerusalem. He was there with the first group uh, of Jews that had gone back after the Persians had take over, and they began rebuilding the temple of Jerusalem. It would be another 80 years before the walls of the city would be rebuilt and all of these other things. And by the time all of this happened, both Daniel and Zechariah had passed off the scene. But there was no way that Daniel and Zechariah could have gotten together and said, Listen, uh, let's plan this thing out. But I want you to look in, in uh, Daniel chapter 9. We'll start reading in verse 24. It says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make a reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, we could spend a month of Sundays just on that one verse trying to get everything it says, but we're not going to. Uh, We just want to touch what this says. It says, 70 weeks are determined. God is going to finish all that the Bible talks about in 70 weeks. That is what the first verse says. Now, verse 25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks, the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Now, let's just stop with this bit of prophecy right here. He said there's 70 weeks from right from the time that the city of Jerusalem is commanded to be rebuilt until the end of time, until God's prophecy is fulfilled. And I know the first thought of someone here might be just a little bit critical, say, wait a minute, 70 weeks. This is over 2,000 years. I mean, Daniel died uh, about 500 years before Jesus was born. And, And so we put all this together. I mean, this... This is, uh, this is not adding up. Well, you've got to follow what the prophecy says. You go down to the last book and we're going we're gonna to skip over an awful lot of stuff today because this is just point one and I don't want to keep you here until two. Uh, the prophetic week is each day of the prophetic week is a calendar of years. There's a fella, I have his book, uh, I'll tell you how to get it, but I won't loan it to you because I don't want to lose it. But uh, he added it all up, and the 69 prophetic weeks of God's prophecy right here works out to, and I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget it, 173,880 days. 173,880 days from the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem to Messiah the Prince would be 69 prophetic weeks. It works out to a total 
according to the Jewish calendar of 173,880 days. Mr. Anderson went through then, and because we do not use the, the Jewish calendar, we use a Western calendar. Um, and here is how he worked it out, was the date that Atrazerxes, I believe, was the king who gave the commandment to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. That date is in history. It's recorded in the chronicles of the king of Persia and the kings of Mede and Persia. And then he goes forward 173,880 days. And you know where he ends up? He ends up on the day that Jesus rode the donkey through the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem. Does that strike somebody as just a little bit beyond amazing? Uh, That's not coincidental. That is how God's prophecy is fulfilled. Now, did you read the rest of Daniel's prophecy? Then shall... Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. There is one week left in God's time clock for Israel. It is what we call the tribulation period. And no, a down economy in the United States is not tribulation. I'm sorry. Uh, I know it causes a lot of suffering, but it isn't anything like is going to be described in the book of Revelation. Does anybody remember what the trigger is for the beginning of the last week? It is the peace treaty between the king of the people that shall come and Israel. Does anybody remember Jimmy Carter? He wanted to bring peace in the Middle East. Say, why isn't there peace in the Middle East? Because Jimmy Carter wasn't the Antichrist. Do you think this president's going to do it? No. But there's coming a man. I believe he's alive right now. Has to be. At least my opinion. But you know, the Apostle Paul thought he was alive in his day as well. The prophecy must be fulfilled. And no, this isn't Nostradamus, who is only about... 15% correct. It isn't Gene Dixon, I think, who made an amazing 17% correct prophecies. Uh, Who was the guy that was always accurate with the football scores? I don't remember. Uh, Jimmy DeGreek or Jim Brady. Diamond Jim Brady. Wasn't he the one that was always there with all the football scores and knew who was going to win what game? How accurate was he? I don't think it was 173,880 days accurate. That's the prophecy. The disciples didn't understand. The Pharisees didn't understand. No one understood what was going on except God. I want to challenge you today that there was an awful lot of prophecy that was fulfilled on that day. And by the way, 
the people that owned the city, controlled the city of Jerusalem in the medieval times and after the time of Christ, and it was destroyed by the Romans and rebuilt, they took that eastern gate and they sealed it up. They put a cemetery out in front of it because they knew that no king of the Jews could come through that eastern gate through a cemetery because it would make him unclean. Little did they know the king had already come through the eastern gate. He doesn't need to do it again, but he will. You say, what's going to happen to the cemetery? Well, you read the book of Revelation. There's going to be a few earthquakes here and there. Things are going to get rearranged. God will take care of the cemetery. Trust me. He's going to do some fabulous things. Because his prophecy must be fulfilled. And by the way, if your heart like mine grieves for what is going on in our nation today, be careful of one thing. The prophecy must be fulfilled. Whether America has any place in it or not is still a mystery to most of us. And so we'll just have to trust God that his word will be fulfilled as it was on that day when Jesus rode the donkey through the gate of the city of Jerusalem. Amen. First point, the prophecy. It's amazing, the prophecy. It is unbelievable how accurate the prophecy of God is. But I want you to also see something about this day, because that's not all that was going on on that day Jesus rode through the city. And if you like alliteration, I finally pulled one out this morning. Uh, We have the prophecy, but next we have the passion. Does anybody remember what the Pharisees were doing as Jesus was coming down that descent from the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem? Those that have been there describe it as such as the Mount of Olivet is a is a like a little rise in the hill and you come around the corner of the road there and the entire city, including the Temple Mount, is laid out in a panorama before you. And as Jesus rounded that corner and started down into the city of Jerusalem proper, Matthew tells us, and when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? They say the city of Jerusalem was a city of several hundred thousand people, maybe as many as 600,000 people. But on the days of Passover, the city population would swell to between two and three million people. When they offered the lambs on Passover day, the blood would seep down through the temple stones as it was poured out around that altar there in the temple complex and literally paint the side of the mountain Jerusalem was built upon, red with the blood of sacrificial lambs. It was on that day that this was happening, Jesus would sit down with his disciples and partake of what we now call the Lord's Supper, the Passover meal. He would be crucified. Praise God, his sacrifice never needs to be repeated. But could you imagine three million people 
getting upset about something. We haven't seen anything like that ever in all the riots and problems we've had in this nation. We've never seen anything on that scope. Yet it says here that the entire city was moved. Everybody was talking about this thing, the noise, the din uh, of the people trying to figure out what was going on was almost as loud as those that were praising him as they were coming into the temple. The city of Jerusalem was a cacophony of noise and confusion as that donkey rode right into the gate and came up to the steps of the temple and Jesus ascended those steps more than once. As they were coming down the road in the book of Luke, it tells us that the Pharisees said, Don't you hear what your disciples are saying? Jesus looked at him and said, Yes. They're calling you the son of David. They're saying, Hosanna. That word belongs only to God, not to you. And Jesus said, If these should hold their peace, the very stones would begin to cry out praise to me. You know, one thing, when you get passion involved in something, it's not easy to change your mind. As you see the passion of these Pharisees and these religious leaders begin building, it's easy to understand why some unlearned person approaching the Scripture could say that Jesus was a martyr, a victim of the anger and the hatred and the passion of the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders. How anyone who is familiar with this book called the Bible could say that is blasphemy is the only way you can put it. Because Jesus was not a victim. He was a fulfillment of the prophecies. He knew exactly what was going on. It would be that passion that would drive these men to go into Pilate and say, crucify him, give us Barabbas, give us the murderer so that we can kill this man. And Jesus said, what should I do with him? Pilate said, what should I do with him? He said, kill him, crucify him. Pilate said, I'm not going to crucify him, I'm going to scourge him. They said, no, if you let this man go... You're not a friend to Caesar because he claims to be a king. They had it all worked out. Have you ever seen the passion of people possessed with something that just literally carried them along? They didn't even know what they were doing. If we had time this morning, we could take the the process of the sacrifice in the Old Testament And you'll find out that everything God had commanded the priest to do for the sacrifice, they did to Jesus. They laid their hands upon him. They caused Pilate to do the flaying or the slicing up of the sacrifice with the Roman whip. The fire that was under Jesus was not the fire of ordinary wood. It was the fire of the wrath of Almighty God. He cried out in the darkness, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know what the scribes and the Pharisees said? 
good. We got him. He's dead. But then they got thinking about things and they went back to Pilate the crucifixion day and said, Pilate, he said he was going to rise again. Did his disciples say Jesus was going to rise again? This shows you how much those scribes and those Pharisees understood about Jesus and the prophecies and all the things that would be fulfilled. They knew what they were doing. And yet their passion drove them to crucify their Messiah. And by the way, if we should have someone so foolish to indulge in anti-Semitic beliefs and behavior today, every living human being is just as responsible for the blood of Jesus because of our sins. Don't you go blaming the Jews. There are words for people like that. But they're not nice ones. He died in our place willingly so we could go free. He was going to fulfill the prophecies. But let me tell you, that wasn't the only place passion came from on this day. How many of you remember what the crowd was doing? Hosanna to the son of David. Glory to God in the highest And he came down that road in through the eastern gate and up the temple steps in Jerusalem and sat on the steps. And they brought the lame and the blind and the little children and Jesus began healing them. Can you think of the passion of the crowd as they were there? And and we have Bible scholars and theologians that want to say, well, the Jews rejected Jesus as their king. That doesn't sound like rejection to me. Does it sound like rejection to you? They worshipped him as the son of David in the temple. How could you accept him any more than that? But the prophecy had to be fulfilled. There was passion from the people. But there was some passion from our Lord and Savior as well. How many of you remember that? The cries of the crowd and the praise and the adulation as he was coming down that procession into Jerusalem. When they came around that final curve and Jesus could see the city. What does the Bible say Jesus did? Did he rejoice at all the praise that was being given him? No. He did exactly the opposite. It says Jesus wept. Twice we have Jesus weeping in the Bible. One at the grave of Lazarus and one over the city of Jerusalem. Does anybody remember what he was weeping about? He wept and said, let's go to Luke chapter 19. Let's just go there and look very quickly. Luke chapter 19. Jesus was saying, if you could only know the city, if you could only know what was coming. Look at verse 42 of Luke chapter 19, saying, if thou hadst known even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee. 
that thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round about and keep thee in on every side. And they shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Jesus wept because of what he knew was going to happen in the city of Jerusalem. That was going to be nearly 40 years later. Would be 70 A.D. The armies of Titus and the Romans would gather around Jerusalem and fulfill these words. Titus wanted to preserve the temple. He wanted to preserve the great architecture of Jerusalem. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees were having a sword fight on the temple steps about some doctrinal discussion between them. And when Titus sent in and sent his emissary, they said, take a hike. We don't have any time to talk to you. We're settling our own business. And he told his men, he said, destroy the city. But save the temple. And as they were breaching the walls, one of them threw a torch into the temple. And it caught fire and the gold that was in the temple began to seep between the cracks in the stones. One of the rules of war was the soldiers get to keep the spoil. And those soldiers killed every living thing in the city of Jerusalem. And then they tore that temple apart stone by stone. And scrape the gold out between the stones and put it in their pockets. And there was nothing the general could do to stop them. You see, the prophecy had to be fulfilled. But there was an awful lot of passion from the scribes and Pharisees in their hatred toward Jesus. From Jesus in his love toward that city and the people that lived in it. From the people in that city who were willing to believe that Jesus was their king. But we've got one more point. We have the prophecy. We have the passion. But we also have the praise and the power. God's word will be fulfilled. Amen? And God does not need our help to fulfill His Word. But let me tell you something. If you want to be on the right side of history, don't ask if Jesus is on your side. Ask if you can be on His. Amen? Ask if you can be doing what He wants you to do. When he comes back, you see, the disciples didn't understand what they were doing. But Jesus did, and they fulfilled prophecy. They fulfilled prophecy to the point to where if the people did not praise, creation itself would be able to begin to ring out his praises. Amen. But you see, here was the problem. There's always got to be a but in there, doesn't there? You see, Jesus came as their king. But they wanted a king that would break the bondage of Rome. They wanted a king. The, the commentators of the Jewish faith between the Testaments had taken 
different passages in the Old Testament and perverted them to such an extent that when Messiah came, every Jew was going to have 140 servants who were going to do his bidding every day. Now, you'll notice that you're probably not going to hear much of that kind of prophecy spoken about in the synagogues today because it's ridiculous. But this was the things that they had developed. They had built a Messiah that was so foreign from the Scriptures that when the real Messiah was presented before them, they could not recognize Him. And by the way, do we not have people today who build their own religion and their own Messiah I remember hearing someone on the radio, if Jesus were here, he would not condemn homosexuality as sin. Excuse me? That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Only Jesus can heal that sin. No one else can. Jesus died on the cross for sin. Do you think he's going to tell you to go out and sin because he paid for it? The Bible says that thought is as foreign to the scriptures as any thought ever conceived in the perverted heart of mankind. God did not save us so we could sin. You see, Jesus came to give a victory that the Jewish people could not even fathom or dream of in that day. He came to give victory over sin. He came to give victory over death. He came to give freedom from the blood sacrifice. I've heard some of these wacko animal lover people say, the Bible's a horrible book because it talks about killing animals. No, God was trying to show you how horrible your sin is by the death of all those animals. He's trying to give you just a moment to understand what His Son would go through so you could be set free from your sins. That the hundreds of thousands of sacrifices that were offered cannot even begin to purchase one drop of the blood of our Savior and our King. That's the kind of victory He came to give. Jesus came to fulfill the will of God so that you can, I can be set free. How many of you know the verse, Romans 6.23? Say it with me. For the wages of sin is death. Why did Jesus die on the cross? To take your wages. To take what you had earned, what you rightfully deserved. That word is not in there by mistake. Wages is something that you earn, something that it would be wrong to withhold from you. If you work for someone and you deserve your, you deserve your pay, your pay is death. Jesus said, I'll take what you've earned on the cross. The rest of that verse, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
We had a movement start when I was just a teenager back in the late 70s and early 80s that we would have a Christian government in the United States. The first president of the United States that claimed to be a born-again Christian was Jimmy Carter, who is personally responsible for many of these wicked judges who have upheld abortion rights down through these decades since his time. Study history. That's not, that's not the kind of Christian Bible talks about. But that's the truth. We lost more freedoms during the eight-year tenure of President Reagan than we did at any other time in American history until probably the passage of the last health care bill. Why? Because salvation cannot come from Washington. God's answer is not Christian government. By the way, 90% of what is called Christian today, is it Christian? No, most of it's not. If you want Christian, that means Christ-like. How did Jesus come? Lowly, bringing salvation. He would conquer death through his own death and resurrection. He would conquer sin by paying the price of every sin that was ever sinned. Jesus came not to deliver the Jewish people from Rome, but to deliver all mankind from the bondage of sin forever. The prophecy had to be fulfilled. But let me ask you, where's your passion taking you? You listen, turn on the talk radio. Awful lot of passion going on today, is there not? But where is that passion going to take you? Is it going to take you down to Washington, D.C.? Is it going to take you past the tomb of great Americans and say, this is what we ought to be? Or is it going to take you to an empty tomb outside the city of Jerusalem? It said, this is where our Savior laid for three days. But the grave could not hold him, for he is risen. I'll tell you what, that's where I want my passion to go. I want to serve Jesus when he comes back. Because there's going to be praise and power. You read Revelation chapter 4 and 5. I want to be able to praise him and to live under the protection of his power rather than to praise the works of man and be the recipient of the power of the wrath of Almighty God. By the way, those are the only two choices. As we think of the events of this Palm Sunday, would you think of the prophecy? Would you ask God where your passion lies? What makes you excited? And if it's not this book called the Bible, if it's not the Savior, I beg of you, would you take some time and make that right today? Heaven is going to be about His praise.
It is going to be about the praise of His power. That power in saving souls. That power that is going to be exerted as the events of the book of Revelation are fulfilled. I want to be His servant. Do you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. And Lord, as we think about these events, we would probably have a little part of all of us would love somehow to be transported back there and partake of them, but we cannot. But Lord, we could certainly take the life that you have given us this day. And praise you. We ask that you would take our passions. And embed them. Conform them. Change them. Mold them. With the word of almighty God. We pray that we would eagerly await your prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled. But Lord that we would be about the master's business till you come for us. We ask that you would convict anyone in this room of their need of salvation. Though this has not been truly a salvation message only, Lord. But it's, it's not about us. It's not about the words that are said. It's about you. And I pray that you would work in the hearts of each one here. That they would see and understand their need to be born again the Bible way. Lord, I pray for those that are here today that that are saved. That we would not allow our passions to be swayed, moved away from you and your word. Lord, we ask that we would be faithful till you come back. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.